Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Uh, I don't know why this keeps coming back up, but a few weeks ago mentioned how I had a lot of spiritual mothers and fathers in my life and how my children need a lot of spiritual fathers and mothers in their life here at Jacobswell Church. And again, just want to say happy Mother's Day. Uh, yes to those who have biological children, but many of you are spiritual moms to, to me and to my children and help point us closer to Jesus. And so we are so very thankful to God for you and for his design of motherhood. It is a beautiful and wonderful thing. Uh, one of my favorite memories of, of my mom is, is, is getting home from school and crawling up on her lap or before bedtime and her reading a book to me. And we had this huge bookcase of what is called the Little Golden Book series. It looks like this. I'm not sure if you remember that. Do any of you remember that? Do any of you have that? Okay, so it wasn't just me, all right. And uh, we would pull out one of those little golden books and then go and, and read it. And, and you know, one of my favorite uh, books was the Berenstein Bears, which we still read uh, to our kids, or we did when they were younger. I guess we don't read. They're a little big for that now. But one of the books that we would read on a regular basis would be called The Berenstein Bears Get the gimmies. The Berenstein Bears get the gimmies. Uh, I don't know if you've read this book, uh, but it is a must for any young family. And uh, it, is, uh, it starts out by just sharing about how they have been so tremendously blessed with, uh, with family and with friends and all of those things. Uh, and then the Berenstein Bears go to the grocery store. And as they approach the checkout aisle, uh, mother uh, realizes what is coming. And so she tells him, she says, listen, uh, you are not going to beg for any candy or anything like that. We, we won't handle any of that. We're not going to do any of that today. And that's where we pick up the story. Um, as we pick up the story, it says, but mama, wine sister, they have gummy gumballs, my favorite, and chewy chompers, my favorite wine brother. Now hush, said mama. I simply won't listen to another word. That's when Papa Bear smiled and said, now, Mama, you're only young once. This is what dads do, isn't it? It's like, I want to be the hero. And handed the Cubs their favorite treats. Goes on to the next one and says, can you go next slide? There we go. Zoomed in. It says, it's only too true, said Mama, as they were leaving the supermarket, that you're only young once, but that's all the more reason to learn proper behavior while you're still young and I certainly think, look, look, shouted sister, a new ride. Hey, a bucking frog. I have to say that very carefully, sorry. Shouted brother, that looks even better than the bucking duck. I'm not sure why people are writing this. May we ride it, please? May we, may we, please? And it continues, it says, now Pop had just brought them treats and he thought that was enough for one day, but the cubs made such a fuss that he sighed, dug into his pocket and put some money in the slot. 
Papa looked at Mama and shrugged. Cubs will be cubs, he said. Long story short, they get off the ride and they find this guy that is selling these little squeaky plastic kittens. And the kids ask and they beg if they can have these little squeaky kittens. And the father says, no. And the mother says, no. But then the kids start falling on the ground and flailing around and screaming and yelling. And so father, ashamed of his kid's behavior, decides, okay, I'm going to buy these squeaky plastic kittens. And all the way home, they're squeaking them in his ear. And finally they get home and this is what happens. Oh, keep going. I skipped that part. One, next one. He's looked to the second paragraph. He says, of all the outrageous, disgraceful, embarrassing behavior I've ever seen, he roared, that selfish, greedy performance by our cubs was the worst. Brother and sister have the worst case of the galloping, greedy gimmies I've ever seen. If you are a mom here today, you can probably share your own stories of galloping, greedy gimmies of kids who, after 10 minutes after eating supper, are saying, I'm hungry, I want a treat, I want some ice cream, I want something else, right? Or kids are like, can I have your phone? Can I have your iPad? Can I see this? Can I do this? Can I do the other thing? The galloping, greedy gimmies is innate in us from birth. Now, we as adults uh, don't say gimme because we know that sounds childish, um, but we pray that way sometimes, don't we? We pray that way saying, Lord, give me this, and if you give me this, then I will be completely satisfied. Maybe you say, Lord, give me a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and I will be content. Lord, give me a house, or a bigger house, or a nicer house, or a house on an island, and I will be content. Lord, give me a job, a better paying job, and I will be content. Lord, give me a spouse, or fix the spouse I have and I will be content. Lord, give me obedient kids who don't have the gimmies, and I will be content. Where do you have a case of the gimmies? What is that one thing you're like, man, Lord, if you would just give me this, then I could be happy at life. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would have joy. Then I would have contentment. Friends, we have an unquenchable craving for more because we are discontent people, constantly searching and striving for contentment. And what we will find out later today is that this discontentment actually serves a very important process in our souls. In today's passage, we're going to look at the building blocks of true contentment and true satisfaction of the soul. If you would, please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, we'll be looking at verses 3 to 10. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 993 in the Red Bible. Uh, we are on our second to last week in the book of 1 Timothy, and I don't know about you, but I feel like God has served us so graciously uh, through the book of 1 Timothy, and I'm so, I'm so sad that we will be ending it. And then we will head into the Gospel of Mark and finish that up. Uh, we covered the first half last year, I believe it was. Uh, but as Paul wraps up this uh, epistle... Uh, he is targeting uh, this innate thing that we have inside of us of these greedy, galloping gimmies. And, and this, is, this is what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we'll read verses 3 through 10. He says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and the teachings that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Let's pray. Lord God, we come today confessing. <laughs> I know I'm confessing. There are many times I am not content, but my soul longs for contentment. I feel like I'm always chasing contentment. And I'm guessing there are many here who feel the same. So God, remind us of where unshakable contentment comes from. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So let me ask you, would you consider yourself a content person? Would your family members consider you a content person? Or would they say that you are easily frustrated, discouraged, and anxious? Are you always looking for that next purchase or the next thrill or that next stage of life to make you content, to make you happy? Or are you content right here, right now, in this stage of life? I think all of us long for contentment, but it is seemingly very elusive. In the book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, which I will refer to several times today, is written by Jeremiah Burroughs. We actually have some copies in the atrium if you want to pick one up. But in this book, uh, he talks a lot about Christian contentment, and I'm going to read from him uh, quite a bit today uh, in the intro and in the conclusion. But he says this, it is a special part of the divine worship that we owe to God to be content in a Christian way. To be well-skilled in the mystery of Christian contentment is the duty, glory, and excellence of a Christian. And then he defines contentment this way. He says, Christian contentment is an inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit the whole soul, of spirit, the whole soul, judgment, thoughts, will, affections, and all are, and I think this is the key word, all are satisfied and quiet. Again, today the Apostle Paul is going to show us the building box of that which we seek all the time, which is contentment. Probably the most famous verse from this passage is verse 10, which is misquoted most of the time that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. But to be honest with you, I think the pinnacle of this passage, the hinge point of this passage is really verse six. In verse six, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. To put it in the form of an equation, it would be godliness plus contentment equals 
great gain. Godliness is gain. Contentment is gain. But when you put those two together, it is the platinum package. It is great gain. Last week, Pastor Spencer talked about godliness in verses 11 through 14 because we're kind of moving out of order. It's my fault. But anyways, so he talked about godliness, the flee, uh, to flee sin and pursue righteousness, to fight the good fight, to keep the commandments until Christ returns. Today, we will focus a little bit more on that contentment aspect of the formula. And so here is our outline for today. Pretty basic, pretty easy. Godliness with contentment in God's precepts is great gain, verses three through six. And then secondly, godliness with contentment in God's provision is great gain, verses six through 10. So first, godliness with contentment in God's precepts, meaning God's teaching, God's instructions, God's word. Godliness with contentment in that is great gain. Here in this passage, Paul, again, probably for the fifth time in this book, is addressing false teachers in the church where Timothy is. Now, we may think that false teachers is a thing of the past, uh, but that is just evidence at how convincing false teachers are, right? Like false teachers are sneaky. Uh, we, we can't see them easily. And that's why we don't necessarily always see when someone is a false teacher or when there is false teaching. And so here Paul starts by giving us five characteristics of false teachers, okay? So we're gonna walk through this. So he starts... In verse three, he says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first sign of a false teacher is they teach things that are contrary to the Lord Jesus. Now, certainly we have in mind Jesus's earthly ministry in which he taught many wonderful and glorious things, but I think it is okay to expand this to all of scripture because scripture is written by God and Jesus is God. And furthermore, Jesus is the word. He is the word in the flesh. He is the truth of God, the commandments of God, the promises of God, the salvation of God. He is the word of God in the flesh. And so as we look at this passage, what he is telling us is one of the characteristics of a false teacher is that they teach things that are different than the word of God. The second indication of false teaching is at the end of verse three. So verse three again says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Godliness is God-likeness. Godliness is becoming more and more like God. And false teachers who teach out of accord with God's word teach that which leads to godlessness. False teaching is often oppressive or dismissive when it comes to God's law on godliness. It is oppressive in the form of legalism in that it adds to God's law. Oftentimes when people want to add God's law, they will use terms like, it is a slippery slope. And so let me add these extra laws so that you don't sin against what the Bible says. Satan does this in the Garden of Eden. He adds laws to what God has commanded. But false teachers are also dismissive of God's laws. They will misquote Romans 6.14 and say, we are not under law, but under grace, and therefore we can sin freely. We have a license to sin because we are under grace and not under law, not understanding that the law is a gift of God's grace. Legalism and license are both signs of false teaching and false teachers, and they do not lead to true godliness. Verse four continues with the third characteristic. It says, he is puffed up with conceit. 
and understands nothing. This third characteristic of a false teacher is that he is arrogant. He is arrogant in that he thinks he knows better than the word of God. He thinks that he can put God's word on the side and teach according to his own imagination and his own thought process and that he can do better than what the Bible has to say. This is still predominant in a lot of churches today in which people will put the scripture to the side and just talk about anything under the sun. And they say, and Paul says that this person is arrogant, thinking that they know better than God's word, thinking that they know better than God himself. He continues and he says, he has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Here's the process, and I've seen it time and time again. When someone does not like what the plain teaching of scripture is, what is straight and to the point, what they will start to do is they will start to deep dive underneath the words to make the passage not say what it clearly says. This happens a lot historically in, quote, Christian universities who have left Christianity. What they will do is they will look at God's word, they will see things in God's word that they don't like, that does not accommodate their view, their cravings that they think will bring contentment. And so what they will do is they will spend a lot of time and energy, they will waste a lot of ink and a lot of their own energy and own breath to make the Bible not say what it clearly says. And by the end of it, you end up without Christianity on the whole. I know for me, as my kids approach the college A's, we are very wary of this. I I, I shared this with other people. This is my personal opinion. I would much rather send my child to a secular university with a great church, a great campus ministry, or send my kid to a faithful Christian college, which are becoming fewer and fewer, than to send them to a college full of false teachers that are distorting the word of God, who want to quarrel over words and create controversies over the clear teaching of Scripture. The fourth characteristic of a false teacher is the divisive fruit of their teaching. The result of them undermining the Bible is not godliness, it is not peace, it is not joy, it is not intimacy with God, it is not contentment. He says, which produces envy or ill will. Dissension, that is division among God's people, slander, tearing people down, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Those who are trying to make the Christian Bible conform with non-Christian precepts in order to ease their unchristian soul. And here is the fifth characteristic of false teaching. And this really gets under the motivation or the reason why people are twisting the word of God. It says, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. This is very important at the end of this section because what it is telling us is the reason why they are twisting God's word, why they are accommodating God's commands to fit their craving, their desire for contentment in their way is because They are trying to gain worldly things out of it. They're trying to gain money or they're trying to gain a a guilt-free conscience from from what the Bible says. They're trying to gain health and prosperity through the scriptures by being godly according to their own definition of godliness. This is clearly unbiblical. All you have to do is look at the life of Jesus. Jesus was a pretty godly man. As a matter of fact, he was God in the flesh. He was very faithful man and yet, His life was not marked by health, wealth, and prosperity, but by suffering and poverty. 
And so this is a lie that is common even today, that godliness is a form of gain, that if we are faithful, if we are good people, if we believe enough in God, we will be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. So Paul flips it, and he tells us of a different gain in verse 6. But godliness, he says, with contentment is great gain. And so just, again, to put this in formula for you, uh, false teachers would say that godliness, as they have redefined it, equals worldly gain plus contentment. But Paul is saying godliness, as God defines it in his precepts and his word, plus contentment equals great spiritual gain. Ligon Duncan, who's one of my favorite preachers, shares the story of how he had met up with a young pastor. And this young pastor shared his story of how he grew up in a home where his dad was a word of faith pastor. The word of faith movement is a movement uh, in the prosperity gospel in which people will say, listen, Christian, if you are looking for contentment, which we all are, all you have to do is be faithful enough to God, good enough to God, repent of every one of your sins. And if you do those things, again, you'll be healthy, you'll be wealthy, and you will be prosperous. By the way, this is the, the, the majority of Christian programming on TV is, is this word of faith movement and enticing you to pursue the gifts of God instead of God himself. Anyways, this young man grew up and he went off to college and became president of the campus ministry that was uh, committed to this theology. While during this time, his younger sister who loved the Lord, who he looked up to tremendously, was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And so he and his father took her around to various word of faith crusades seeking for her to be healed, but she was not healed. And then finally, when she reached the age of 23, she passed away. And when she passed away, all of his confidence in this prosperity gospel came crashing down. He couldn't reconcile suffering with the theology that he had been taught. He couldn't believe it anymore because he knew that his sister loved Jesus and she was one of the godliest people he knew. And, and even in her dying moments, pointed others to the goodness of Christ. And so in the midst of this tragedy, he's listening to some Christian rap music and begins to hear a theology of suffering that he had never, ever heard before. And he looked up the footnotes of that rap album, and he found people like John MacArthur and John Piper and then R.C. Sproul and then Reformed Theological Seminary where Pastor Jonathan Whitley went and where others have gone. One of our elders is going there. It's a great seminary. And as he listened to these online classes he began to fully embrace these doctrines of grace and the sovereignty of God, and it turned his life upside down. And then his father started to adopt these, these doctrines of grace and God's sovereignty. And it starts transforming him, and it starts transforming their congregation to delight, not in the gifts of God, but in God himself. Friends, many of us here would rightfully condemn the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, if you are even familiar with it. But don't we struggle with the same thing? Don't we grow bitter and angry and frustrated when things don't go our way? Don't we say, Lord God, I don't understand why I have this chronic pain. Aren't I faithful to you, Lord? God, I am seeking to be faithful, but I'm not getting a promotion at work or money seems very tight. God, I have surrendered everything to you. So why is my loved one suffering or why did they pass away? 
You know, Jesus makes many promises in the Bible that we love to to cross-stitch, to put up on a refrigerator, but there are some promises we don't like so much. In John 16, Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. And then here's his promise. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have troubles. You will suffer in this world. That is Jesus's promise. And then he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, there are two ways of approaching God's word, God's precepts. Either like the false teachers, we stand over the Bible and we critique it and we criticize it, and we try to manipulate it to fit our worldly cravings, or we stand under the Bible, and we let it critique us, and we let it change us and transform us and conform us into the ways of God. Godliness with contentment in God's precepts and God's word is great gain. Secondly, Paul says, That godliness with contentment in God's provision is great gain. Look at verse six with me again. He says, but godliness, godlikeness with contentment, satisfaction of the soul is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, right? Nothing. You didn't bring your clothes into the world. You didn't bring any money into the world. You brought nothing into the world. Everything that you have is a gift from the grace of God. It is the provision of God. He says, and we cannot take anything out of the world. As has been famously said, you never see a U-Haul attached to a hearse. You don't take anything with you. But if we have food and clothing with these and these alone, we will be content. Paul is saying, listen, if we have the very basics, if we have something to eat, if we have clothes on our back, we can be content. We can have a satisfied soul. And the question is, how can that be? How can we be satisfied? How can we be content with virtually nothing? And we'll get back to that later in the sermon. But he continues at verse 9. It says, but those who desire are minded towards to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, that is an animal trap, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge, literally drown people into ruin and destruction. And so Paul is, is Paul here saying that, that, that capitalism is evil, that we should be communistic, that we should just not think about money or pursue money or anything like that? Well, let's keep reading. Again, a very misquoted but familiar verse. Verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Notice this verse does not say that money is a root of all kinds of evil. Nor does it say that money is the root of all kinds of evil, as it is often misquoted. What is evil is not the money. It is our love of money. It is our heart that is evil and wicked. We see this even earlier here in verse 9. It does not say that being rich plunges people into ruin. It says it is the desire to be rich that plunges people into ruin. Money is neutral. Money is paper. Money is green paper. It is our heart that is wicked, not money, not riches. And so regardless of how much money you have, you could have nothing in your bank account or it could have millions of dollars in your bank account. It does not matter. That is not what Paul is addressing. That is not what God is addressing. What God says here is that 
the way that we think about money reveals the condition of our heart. J.D. Rockefeller was an American businessman who had an instrumental role in founding the Standard Oil. And J.D. was, a, was the first billionaire in history, and if it was in today's dollars, he would still be the richest person in the history of mankind. And one time, a reporter asked J.D. Rockefeller, he said, how much money is enough? And the response was this, one dollar more. One dollar more. That's what I need to be content. I don't know about you, but I can kind of resonate with that. I, I, I'm, to be honest with you, I struggle with the love of money. I think, man, if we just had a few dollars more, we wouldn't have to pinch pennies when we go on vacation. We could have cars with less than 100,000 miles on it. We could, like, if I just had a little bit more money, then everything would be happy again. You know, I have seen rich people, middle-class people, even poor people that are obsessed with money. And in the same way, I've seen rich people, middle-class people, and poor people that are free from the love of money. Sadly, this is the case in the American Christian culture today. This love of money is, is such a huge struggle. American Christians today are probably the richest Christians in the history of the world. Most of us here today are in the top 8% of the world population when it comes to household income. And yet today, American Christians spend more money on dog food than they do on missions. As far as tithing, uh, if you're familiar, the Bible calls us to tithe, to give 10% of our income to the church, to the work of God, to the kingdom of God, which Jesus reaffirms in Matthew 23, 23. And yet it's reported that only 10 to 25% of Christians tithe Furthermore, American Christians, on average, only give about 2.5% of their income, which is down from the time of the Great Depression, where people gave 3.3% of their income. You know, the reason we struggle with tithing, the reason we struggle, the reason why I struggle to be a cheerful giver is because we love money. It's because we have forgotten that we came naked into this world with nothing and that all of our money is a gift from God. And so in reality, God is not calling us to give 10% of our money. He's calling us to give 10% of his money, which he has entrusted to us. And God is so generous that he says, you can keep 90% of my money. You can keep that much. That's how generous God is. I struggle with the love of money. I'm guessing many of you do here today. We are constantly indoctrinated. I mean, we, there's now algorithms to put in front of us advertisements to show us what we can't live without. Loving money and craving to be rich is a temptation for all of us. How do we know when we are struggling with the love of money? Well, there's a few ways here. One is if we lie or cheat or steal to save money or to get money, like if we do this on our taxes or if we steal videos online or things like that. Another way we know that we're struggling with the love of money, if we spend money on, on lavish vacations and cars and houses, but we don't obey God's command to give to the kingdom of God or give generously to those who are in need. We know that we love money if we're constantly dreaming about what we would do if we just had $1 more or $100 more, or $1,000 more a month. And finally, the sure sign that we struggle with the love of money is if we hate a sermon about money. You see, I've learned that when we get frustrated or uncomfortable or even angry or defensive 
When the scriptures call us to do something, it is because the scripture is attacking an idol in our life. It is poking something that is precious and cherishable to us that we do not want it to attack. Now you may think, by the way, just so you know, uh, we don't talk about money much here, James. We only talk about when it comes up in the Bible. And I know what nobody get, gives in the church. I don't want to know what people give. It's not good for me to know. And so I'm not targeting anyone. I'm just trying to lay out for you the precepts of God that are good for your contentment, okay? Now, you may think this is not a big deal, uh, you know, this money thing, or, or that you're just going to continue with the direction you're going. Uh, but Paul tells us here that this has eternal consequences. Look at verse 10 as we continue. He says, it is through the, this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains or many sorrows. Why is this? Because the love of money, of vacation, of nicer cars and nicest, nicer houses is greater than their love for God. We see this in the story of the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to be saved? And he lists out his moral resume. And then Jesus says to him, he says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Do you know what the one thing he lacked was? He lacked the love of God over the love of money. His soul would never be eternally satisfied by his riches. The same is true of Judas and Ananias and Sapphira and others in the scripture. Jesus tells the parable of the sower. And he says, as for that which was sown among the thorns, sharing the gospel that was sown among, sown among the thorns, he says, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Final thing about money. Money is both a thermometer and a thermostat. It's a thermometer and a thermostat. Thermometers, what do they do? Thermometers read the temperature of the room, right? They don't change anything. They just merely read the temperature of the room. In the same way, if you want to know the temperature of someone's heart towards something, all you have to do is look at their checkbook. Look at, look at their, their, uh, their credit card statements. Look at their bank account. See where they have spent money. You see, money tells us the things that we love. It is a thermometer. It reads the temperature of our heart towards different things. But it's not only a thermometer. Money is also a thermostat. What does a thermostat do? A thermostat changes the temperature of a room, right? In Matthew 6, 21, Jesus says this. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He does not say, for where your heart is, there your treasure will be, which is also true. It is a thermometer, but it's also a thermostat. He says, if you put your money into something, your heart will follow behind it. It will raise the temperature of your heart for that thing. So for example, uh, if you are investing in stocks and you decide to invest in Costco stock, all of a sudden you have a new love and appreciation and interest for Costco, right? But not towards the other stocks. In the same way, if you are investing your money in the things of God, Compassion International, missions, tithing to the church, if you invest your, heart, your, your money into those things, it will raise the temperature of your heart for the things of God. Yes, money is a thermometer that reads the temperature, but it's also a thermostat that warms the temperature of your heart in whatever you invest in. Benjamin Franklin once said this. I love this quote. He says, contentment makes poor men rich. Discontent makes rich men 
poor. Paul would add it this way. He would say godliness with contentment in God's precepts and God's provision makes any man rich. I want to end by focusing on contentment. I know we've kind of focused on it the whole time, but I really want to focus it in on this. You know, I, again, I think all of us on a daily basis are, are pursuing contentment. We want contentment. We are in some ways chasing contentment. The same Apostle Paul who wrote 1 Timothy also wrote Philippians chapter 4. And in Philippians 4, he says this, he says, I have learned. He learned this. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And so Paul, what's the secret? What's the secret to contentment that you have learned? What is the secret to being content if I am rich or if I'm poor? If I'm hungry or if I'm well-fed? What is the secret to contentment? Even in the, the highest peak of the mountain or in the valley of the shadow of death, what is the secret to contentment? Well, again, I think Jeremiah Burroughs serves us well in how he explains it to us. This is what Jeremiah Burroughs says. He says, my brethren, uh-oh, <laughs> Can you flip one more and go back? Let's see if it will work. There we go. My brethren, the reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not things proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God himself. What Jeremiah is saying is the reason we are discontent is not because we want too much. It's not because you want too much. It's because you want too little. It's because you want to satisfy your soul with the gifts of God instead of with God himself. Your soul was never meant to be contented by the gifts of God. Your soul was made for God. Have we not tried our entire life to have a content life by pursuing the gifts of God instead of God himself? You could have a million dollars, a lifelong vacation, a billion toys, and your heart will not be content because your heart was not made for things. Your heart was made for God. The treasures of this world will never satisfy your soul. If you are discontent, if you are self-entitled, if you are anxious, if you are always this crabby patty, it's because you have been chasing after lesser treasures that will never satisfy your soul. And you have not known or you have forgotten the greatest treasure is God himself. And he is the only treasure that can satisfy your greeting, galloping gimmies. This is why Paul says, I can be content with food and clothing alone because I have God, the greatest treasure of my soul. He is mine wherever I go, no matter the circumstance. If I am on the mountaintop or if I am in the shadow of death, I am with God. But how do we get God? How do we get this satisfying treasure? You know, it's been said the best things in life are free. And the Bible said, that's true, kind of. You see, it is true that the best things in life and in the life to come in fellowship with God is free. We cannot earn God's love. We cannot earn God's favor with our money or with our good works or our godliness. We cannot earn any of it. It is unconditional. 
And it is unshakable. And it is free for us. But you know what? It was not free for God. As a matter of fact, it came at great cost to God. It cost God his most treasured possession. God had to send his one and only son, whom he loved more than anything in the world. He sent him into this world. And Jesus forsook the treasures of heaven to come into this world. And then forsook the treasures of this world. He forsook the treasure of a comfortable life. He forsook the treasure of, a, a, of power and of a big mansion. He forsook the treasure of a wife and a family. And do you know why Jesus forsook all of these treasures? So that God may gain you as his treasure. And so that he might become your treasure. For in life and death, Jesus was perfectly obedient to the word of God, the plan of God, the precepts of God. Furthermore, Jesus is the ultimate provision of God. And at the cross, Christ takes on our entitled, discontented, idolatrous, money-loving hearts and dies the death we deserved and then rose from the dead to give you eternal life with God. But it gets even better than that. Jesus then ascends into heaven to send down his Holy Spirit to indwell you and fill the God-shaped hole in your life that will give you contentment. It's as if God of the universe unzipped your skin, found an empty, disconsented soul, and climbed inside and filled it up to provide the only thing that can satisfy your soul, which is God himself. Friend, if you want to be content, there is only one treasure proportionable to your desires. And it is not the gifts of God. It is God himself, who is offered to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I don't know about anyone else, but this is a convicting <laughs> passage. Uh, it reveals a lot of, of my own discontentment, my own love of money. Lord Jesus, I pray in the midst of our discontentment that we would look to you, that we would be reminded of how we have pursued contentment in everything under the sun, and it has still left us empty. That contentment can only come by being in fellowship with our Creator by knowing your love for us, your care for us. And so God, may we become a more and more content people, a more and more happy people, a more and more delighted people because our greatest treasure has satisfied our soul. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.